F-35, Queen Elizabeth Aircraft Carrier, Army 2020. What is the future of Royal Air Force, Royal Navy and the British Army? This is the Defense Aviation Podcast, Episode 3. Are you frustrated with high-cost press release distribution services that just fail to give you the right exposure? For just $7.99 per year, we will publish your press releases that will reach the right audience in the aerospace industry. Visit defenseaviation.com forward slash PR and use the coupon code podcast to get 16% discount. Welcome to Defense Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Larkins D'Souza, founder of defenseaviation.com. Today, we are going to discuss about the future of British Armed Forces with Justin Brong from Royal United Services Institute in London. For show notes and to ask any questions to Justin, please visit defenseaviation.com forward slash episode 3. Justin Bronk is a researcher for combat air power and technology in the military services team at the London-based defense think tank, the Royal United Services Institute. He is currently working on various projects including a delayed in-depth study into how to get the most value from the F-35 for the Royal Air Force and Royal Navy, which will be published in the very near future. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you. Justin, take a minute, fill us any blanks from that introduction and give us a glimpse into your personal life. Um, well, I'm a, a long-time aviation enthusiast uh, and I, uh, I keep a PPL, a private pilot's license, uh, for uh, flying in my spare time. Um, I'm 26 now and I have a slight chip on my shoulder insofar as uh, colour blindness killed my original dream of being a a fast jet pilot for the Royal Air Force. Um, Otherwise, I do a lot of outdoors stuff, um, sailing, windsurfing, rifle shooting, skiing. Um, And yeah, in London, you're most likely to find me at the pub. Oh, so you originally wanted to be a fighter pilot? Yeah, I mean... uh, Flying typhoons, uh, for the, especially for the salary the RAF gives you, uh, seems pretty much like the best job in the world. It's a shame I can't manage it. Wow. Justin, you're at a party and someone asks you, what do you exactly do? How would you answer that in under 10 seconds? Um, Rusi, uh, the Royal United Services Institute, we, uh, we sit in a slightly strange place in between government, the military, industry and the media. Um, so we kind of draw all of those together a little bit and speak to all of those groups. It's a fun space to write and work in, and uh, I'm Rusi's expert on uh, anything that flies with weaponry on board. Awesome. Take a step back and explain to us how you started in this industry. Uh, Originally, I I studied history, uh, and I did a master's at the LSE in London, looking at uh, particularly US-UK nuclear relations during the Cold War. Uh, After that, I tried various bits and pieces for a year or so before landing an internship at Rusi in 2013, and I haven't let them get rid of me since. Starting with the Royal Air Force, let's address the elephant in the room. What's going on with the F-35 variant selection process, and are they going for the F-35B or F-35C? Explain to our audience the confusion that caused this mess. So the the initial orders will be for the F-35B, uh, the short takeoff vertical landing uh, version. Uh, that's a necessity now because the Queen Elizabeth carriers, uh, the aircraft carriers, uh, have been delivered the first one in at least in ski jump uh, configuration, so without catapults and uh, arrestor gear. Uh, so the F-35C version, like the U.S. Navy, uh, can't be can't be uh, operated off them. Uh, back in 2010, 
the government uh, decided to try and go for the C variant and put the uh, emails electromagnetic catapult on the Queen Elizabeth carriers, um, but cost increases and, and essentially uh, delays uh, and concerns over the email system uh, led to a decision to go back to the F-35B variant and the ski jump in 2012. Uh, so initially, the UK will, will purchase at least 48 F-35Bs and potentially more uh, to go on the carriers and also operate from land bases. Uh, it'll be a joint force. Um, but since in the recent SDSR uh, 2015, the UK government confirmed that it plans to eventually acquire 138 F-35s, there's a question mark over what the remaining bulk order will be in terms of versions. I'd suggest it's most likely that the bulk of the remaining F-35s in that order will be the conventional takeoff landing F-35A version, which the US Air Force is planning to operate as well. Uh, the version is cheaper than the B, it has longer range, greater internal weapons payload capacity, as well as an internal gun. Um, so eventually, and we're talking now into the very late 2020s, mid-2030s, I can see the RAF operating F-35As, while the Royal Navy take full control over the initially joint F-35B force uh, to operate from the carriers. Interesting. Um, how many do you think the UK would end up buying the F number of F-35s? I mean, 138 is still the stated aim. Um, okay. So that was the original commitment for the UK as a, t as a, um, a tier one partner in the program. Oh, okay. uh, and there were, there were questions over whether that would ever come to fruition. But in the latest Strategic Defence uh, Security Review in 2015, uh, the government, uh, somewhat surprisingly, in, in many people's opinion, confirmed that it does still plan to purchase the entire 138. Okay. So do you think in the future the UK might increase these orders? Say, um, I, th I think uh, if you're looking towards the very late 2030s, uh, potentially, but on the other hand, uh, the, the 138, uh, because of the defense budget uh, in its limited form, will have to be uh, stretched out over the entire 2020s. So uh, I think the 138, when they're eventually delivered, will be starting to um, replace Typhoon in a lot of roles um, by the kind of mid-2030s. Where we go from there, I think it's just too far away in terms of technology and the state of the world to really predict. The Tornado, the Eurofighter and the F-35, how would these be part of the future Royal Air Force? So the Tornado is, is a very capable uh, attack and reconnaissance platform, um, but it is nearing the end of its UK service life. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the airframe is, is 40 years old, more or less. Um, and on current plans, it's going to retire in 2019 with the three remaining squadrons converting across to Typhoon. Um, Typhoon is, is maturing very fast as a multi-role asset. Uh, finally, I mean, this has been long delayed, as is well known, but uh, now that the uh, Typhoon is out in its latest uh, P1EB software configuration for the tranche twos and threes um, out in, in Libya. So, I, well, it did perform in Libya, but that was the tranche ones. Um, it's now out in Syria, conducting airstrikes with Pavewave 4. Um, it, it's on its way to being uh, the multi-role asset that can really replace Tornado. And once the Storm Shadow uh, cruise missile and the Brimstone 2 uh, anti-armor missile are integrated onto Typhoon in 2016 and 2018, respectively, uh, the aircraft will be fully ready to take over from Tornado. There is an exception, which is the DB-110 Raptor uh, wide area surveillance pod, which Tornado carries, but Typhoon currently doesn't. Uh, there are plans to fit DB-110 in uh, a modified fuel tank onto Typhoon, um, but these are not concrete yet in terms of timing or funding. 
Uh, so that will be a slight capability gap. Uh, the F-35B, when it enters service um, with an IOC in, uh, initial operating capability in 2018 and a full operating capability in 2023 on current targets, um, will be required by both the Royal Navy and the RAF. Uh, so for duties at sea and ashore. And because there'll be initially quite small numbers of F-35Bs in service, uh, it'll mean small deployments, uh, mostly to support the backbone of typhoons for dangerous theatres. And then towards the early 2030s, typhoon will start to be slowly drawn down over that decade as tornado has been in the 2010s and probably eventually replaced by a combination of F-35A and a future combat UCAV. There are rumours that the Eurofighter Tranche 3 were, uh, upgrade will have... Uh, Thrust, ve- thrust vectoring engines, is that true? <clears throat> there, there's always been uh, an offer from Eurojet who make the um, uh, EJ200 engines uh, that power Typhoon to uh, put in thrust vectoring, um, also to deliver engines with up to 30% more thrust quite easily without altering the basic design. Um, the problem for Eurojet um, when it comes to their business model is that they built such a fantastic engine uh, that essentially all the typhoon operators are pretty happy with the engine performance. It's, you know, it's one of the strongest uh, capabilities on the aircraft. So although there is the possibility to put thrust vectoring on the aircraft, um, uh, most most of the, the nations that fly it and the pilots that fly it, while they quite like it, it, it's not a priority because the maneuverability is already extremely good on typhoon. Um, so I think we're more likely to see uh, the aerodynamic modification kit, um, which is being trialled in, in Germany at the moment, which rather than uh, introducing thrust vectoring, introduces um, uh, sheens, so um, uh, leading edge extensions uh, to bring the, uh, the, the alpha performance a bit better, um, as well as extensions to the ailerons and the back, the uh, elevons, sorry, at the back of the delta wing. And the reason why that's being pursued more than thrust vectoring is because at the moment, although Typhoon is extremely maneuverable, um, it starts to become a bit uh, less stable at really heavy loading. So if you're really loading it up with bombs and cruise missiles, etc., um, as well as loaded fuel. So when that happens, uh, because of the inherent instability of the wing at really heavy loadings, the flight control system um, decreases what you can do in terms of chucking the aircraft about. So in giving it uh, leading edge route extensions and and increased, in effect, uh, elevon um, area at the back will really help with that, as well as uh, increasing its instantaneous turn rate. So do you think the airframe, the Delta airframe of the Eurofighter is a problem in terms of maneuverability compared to the Russian design? Um, I don't think so, actually. I think the the only problem with um, if it is, I mean, the compromise that the Typhoon's um, Delta and decoupled canards configuration makes is that it opts for uh, maximum maneuverability at supersonic speeds, um, and as a result, uh, you know, for example, if it's if it's right down low in the weeds and at mid subsonic speeds, uh, then the Rafale, for example, or one of the Russian fighters, uh, particularly the Sukhois. Uh, would probably be able to outmaneuver it uh, in in a horizontal turning fight. On the other hand, it's got so much thrust capability um, and such a good thrust to weight ratio, even with combat loads, that it can usually accelerate away up. And in in any kind of representative combat situation, um, would be engaging from a very very high altitude at very high speed. 
Um, so it can operate comfortably above 60,000 feet and at, at you know, Mark II plus up there. So uh, again, it, it, although there is a compromise made um, in terms of, you know, as I'd call it, air show maneuverability, which is still good, um, but compared to something like the super maneuverable Sukhois or even the Rafale, it, 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 it's optimized for that really, really high speed, high altitude supersonic maneuverability. So it, it's just a trade-off. Will we see any more fifth generation projects under British Armed Forces? Um, I don't think so, at least until the late 2020s. Uh, the next major platform procurement after the F-35 will probably be something along the lines of the Tyrannus UCAV, uh, which is a, a technology demonstrator, stealth um, unmanned combat aerial vehicle, which will probably complement the manned platforms uh, rather than replace them in a, in a deep strike uh, sort of, or deep penetration role. Um, the issue being that unless a, a, a revolution in terms of, say, quantum computing um, allows um, basically logic-based reasoning um, and decision-making by aircraft which without a pilot, they'll still be uh, inferior in most cases to manned fighter aircraft in the air superiority role. But if you're looking at, uh, you know, a UCAV as a, as a stealthy uh, deep strike and reconnaissance platform, to complement the manned fighters in areas potentially where they can't go or it's too high risk, there I think there's a lot of potential. So I think um, there will probably be what we might call a sixth generation aircraft as, a, as a, an operational combat UCAV uh, as the next procurement after F-35 for the British Air Forces. Everyone is excited about the two aircraft carriers under development. When will they be commissioned to, for the active duty and where do they stand on the British expeditionary ambitions? Uh, so the Queen Elizabeth, the first of the two new aircraft carriers, will be embarking F-35Bs for deck, uh, hopefully in late 2018, for initial deck operating capability trials. Uh, and then an IOC uh, on the deck of around 2020 with full operating capability of the Queen Elizabeth F-35 um, weapon system uh, in 2023. Uh, the Prince of Wales will be following a, a similar schedule, but about five years behind the Queen Elizabeth. Uh, and the Prince of Wales will also have a greater emphasis on amphibious assault capabilities with the Royal Marines and large-scale helicopter lift, uh, as well as F-35B capacity, uh, than the Queen Elizabeth, which is more geared towards uh, F-35 and expeditionary um, strike air power. Uh, the largest current difficulty, I think, for the QE-F-35B uh, combination is to see what sort of opponent it would actually be suited for. Because against a serious near-peer threat like, say, Iran, um, the Queen Elizabeth would have to get relatively close to an enemy shoreline due to the short range of the F-35B and the lack of onboard aerial refueling aircraft. Um, however, in doing so, the carrier would be under severe threat from anti-ship missiles, small boat swarms, that sort of thing, as well as small, quiet uh, diesel-electric uh, submarines. And the Royal Navy doesn't have the capacity, really, to put a U.S. carrier battle group-style protection uh, force around the Queen Elizabeth without completely denuding the ability of the Royal Navy to operate anywhere else in the world. Um, against the kind of less serious threat, like, in, like perhaps a Libya-style campaign, um, where that threat to the carrier wouldn't be so uh, severe, conventional aircraft, such as the Rafale M or the, the Super Hornet, would offer greater sortie rates, bomb load, range, and lower cost than the F-35B uh, ski jump combination. It's, it's, there's a lot of ambition um, but I think at the moment, uh, it's quite difficult to articulate a scenario where operating on its own, a British expeditionary QE F-35 combination would be optimal.
uh, British British military is more about a support to the NATO, uh, to the NATO, right? Uh, to a certain extent, yes. Um, I think Britain uh, prides itself on being able to do uh, what they what, uh, members of the armed forces sometimes refer to as America at ten percent. So basically, to uh, deploy the same kind of capabilities that America does, but at a ten percent scale. Um, so I think it's partly that because America uh, and now China, you know, operate bi- and France operate big debt carriers with lots of aircraft. Um, Britain sort of sees itself as as a natural player in that sort of game, and therefore wants to have big debt carriers with high tech aircraft. Um, I think it's as, as much about status as it is about operational capability. In terms of uh, commitments to NATO, um, you know, we're, we're probably more valuable uh, with the very high readiness joint task force contributions. Uh, so that would be the British Army mostly, and things like the Baltic Air Policing. Um, neither of which particularly require carriers because NATO's main threats are Russia, which doesn't require carriers, um, ballistic missile attack potentially from rogue states in the Middle East, um, which again doesn't particularly have uh, any relation to aircraft carriers, and um, you know essentially instability, migration and terrorism on the southern flank uh, across the Mediterranean. So again, it's... Uh, it's difficult to see where the carriers fit into to a NATO contribution outside of being able to join the US in uh, expeditionary warfare. Talk to us about the uh, Army 2020. So Army 2020, um, which as of SDSR 2015 is now Future Force 2025, uh, is, is a neat attempt to make the best of a bad funding and manpower situation for the British Army. Um, the problem is that uh, trying to optimize the same relatively small force for both, uh, as you might call it, soft power, you know, overseas defense engagement, capacity building, while at the same time maintaining the capability, skills and equipment to conduct serious war fighting at the armored battle group level, it is almost impossible. Um, and also, while the reservist recruitment deficit isn't nearly as bad as it was, it's increasingly clear that reservists, however capable and committed, uh, can't compensate for the loss of regulars in many key roles. Um, for the moment, there appears to be little appetite for large-scale deployments of the army. So there is a long-awaited breathing space for the organization as a whole to regroup, reorganize, and kind of decide on the best way to maintain and grow capability uh, in the current budget and planning situation post-Afghanistan. So th- th- there is reason to be optimistic for the British Army, uh, but they're trying to juggle a lot of competing um, requirements and, and tasks without really the manpower and funding to do them all. Will Chinese stealth fighters, J-20 and Russian stealth fighters, Sukhoi-PAKFA, pose a threat to British military ambitions? Uh, or, maybe, the... or maybe their sales to the third-party countries, you know, like maybe mm. China would sell their J-20 to a third-party country. So would that cause a problem to British military? I think the uh, as you've as you've just identified the um, the proliferation of those systems if they start being widely sold around the world is going to be much more of a threat to uh, British military ambitions than China or Russia themselves because you know if, if if we actually ended up in a sort of shooting war with Chinese or Russian fighters um, you know with their main air force I think the British military ambitions would be the least of our concerns. <laughs> um, that would be an extremely serious scenario. Um, 
involving, you know, probably much more concerns around nuclear escalation than whether our fighters could hold their own. Um, but certainly, uh, as, as China and Russia start to try and export, uh, their, their stealth fighters once they, you know, reach a level of relative maturity in order to try and keep the unit cost down, which of course they always do with their top kit, um, that will p- start to pose a threat to, to our ambitions because while the typhoon, um, has some answers, in fact, to, um, you know, relatively stealthy aircraft like the T-50 and or PACFAR and the, and the J-20. It's certainly not uh, an optimal solution to be going against um, stealth fighters with what is, in effect, a, a kind of culmination of the old F-15 uh, team series uh, design philosophy. Um, on the other hand, if you look at the, uh, the possibilities for F-35 uh, and Typhoon coordinating um, in order to hold at threat uh, stealth fighters, there's, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Uh, so, for example, if one, one can imagine um, you know, an F-35 being able to get closer to um, uh, Chinese or Russian stealth fighters without being detected um, and in close enough to detect them, um, and then either um, pass back that information um, via MADL or data links to a typhoon to then queue up meteor shots at very long range from very high altitude and very fast. Or, in fact, you could do the opposite of having the typhoons acting almost as bait, um, you know, tr- using their powerful radars um, to try and not only see but also draw in um, the few stealth fighters that you might be facing in order to allow F-35s to come in close and finish them off. So there are answers to it, but undoubtedly they do pose a potential threat. But the other thing I would caution is that, you know, if you look at uh, the American F-22 program uh, in particular, and also, of course, the F-35, um, it, it, it does pay to remember how big a difference um, there is between a flying prototype that looks like a stealth fighter, or several flying prototypes, and an operationally ready, combat-capable fifth-generation fighter. Very um, true. And, Very and true you know, the Americans, the Americans, of course, were on their third generation of stealth aircraft by that point. The Chinese and Russians have never built them before. Um, so I think they're a lot further from genuine combat capability than we think. Very true, because uh, we don't, don't know if the Chinese stealth fighter right now is actually a stealth fighter. It, it looks like a stealth fighter, but we don't know its operation capabilities, and we don't know if if it is what what the Chinese say it is. Mm. I mean, what 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 is almost certain is that they will be much harder to detect. Um, but of course, uh, the capabilities that the Americans have in the F twenty two and the F thirty five are are certainly uh, not limited to the fact that they are physically harder to detect. Um, it's also hugely to do with the sensor suites on them their capability to um, detect, track, engage targets without themselves um, illuminating their position in the electromagnetic spectrum as well as the radar spectrum, uh, their ability to fuse data, to conduct cyber attacks, potentially um, you know, advanced electronic warfare, that sort of thing. And that, I think, is where um, it's almost impossible to know, but it's, it's highly unlikely the Chinese or Russians are anywhere close to the Americans uh, on that sort of capability. The J- J20, for example, you know, it, it's clearly not optimized for 
for uh, all aspect stealth. You know, you wouldn't choose canards if you were going for maximum low observability. Um, but it will be much harder to detect than previous designs. It will have an impressive range payload um, just from looking at the size of the thing. Um, and, and so, you know, it will be an, a genuine increase uh, in Chinese capabilities. Justin, we are at the end of the show. If you could recommend one book to our listeners, what would it be? Uh, it'd probably be The Burning Blue by James Holland. Uh, it's, it's the best novel I've ever read um, with a wonderful story. It's backed up by superb historical research, uh, wonderful uh, aerial scenes. Uh, it's a gripping setting uh, of the build-up to the Second World War, the Battle of Britain, uh, the Desert Campaign in North Africa. And uh, he's also got a similar work um, called A Pair of Silver Wings, which takes place uh, particularly around Malta, uh, the Battle of Malta, and uh, going into the Italian campaign. They're brilliant, brilliant books. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us about the future of Royal Air Force, Royal Navy, and the British Army, Justin. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Before we say goodbye, what would be the best way to connect with you? Um, probably easiest is to find me on Twitter, which is at Justin Bronk. Or email me at justinb at rusi.org. Uh, that's justin underscore br0nk, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. Thank you, Justin. We'll, we'll be in touch. Thank you. That was Justin Brong from the Royal United Services Institute in London. I really enjoyed the interview. If you have any questions for Justin, visit defenseaviation.com forward slash episode 3. Do you have an announcement for your company's new products or services? Let us publish your press releases and give you the right exposure in the aerospace industry. Visit defenseaviation.com forward slash PR and enter the coupon code podcast to get 16% discount.